0: Hi, it's Amy again with Minded. So today I want to talk more about the theory of autoimmunity. Last podcast, I mentioned the theory and the range of immunosuppressive treatments that have stemmed from its promotion. I stated that the theory needs to be reevaluated to account for the discovery of the human microbiome. So today I will go into even more detail on why that's the case. First, let's talk about how the theory of autoimmunity gained popularity and widespread acceptance in the first place. Around the turn of the century, scientists began detecting Y-shaped molecules called antibodies in patients with a range of acute infectious diseases, like diphtheria, tuberculosis, polio, pneumonia, among others, and researchers like the famous immunologist Paul Ehrlich soon realized that these antibodies play a key role in helping the human immune system correctly target the bacterial and viral pathogens driving these and related diseases. They came up with a model of antibody activity that still largely holds up today. And it contends that, one, antibodies are released by B cells and T cells of the human immune system in response to an infectious threat most commonly a bacterial or viral pathogen. Two, antibodies target and neutralize these pathogens by recognizing the shape and size of unique protein molecules on the pathogen's surface. These pathogen proteins are called antigens. Three, when a human antibody correctly recognizes a pathogen antigen, the two molecules bind together. This tags the antigen and the associated pathogen for further attack by other cells of the immune system, like white blood cells. Four, the immune system begins to rapidly produce or clone more versions of the antibody that correctly tagged the pathogen. As more and more copies of this antibody pour into human blood and tissue, the immune system increasingly recognizes and kills the pathogen. Today, almost every infectious disease is tied to antibody production. For example, when you get the flu, your immune system releases a range of antibodies in response to the flu virus. If all goes well, the antibody that best tags the virus's specific antigens is cloned. More copies of this targeted antibody enter your bloodstream and the recovery process begins. In fact, these same antibodies form the basis of the flu vaccine and related vaccines. In simple terms, a vaccine is made by taking an antibody already known to target a specific pathogen antigen and injecting a small amount of this antibody into a patient. This prepares the patient's immune system for the pathogen. And then, if the patient becomes infected at a later date, the immune system already knows exactly what antibody it should clone and rapidly release. Then the pathogen can be neutralized and killed before it has a chance to spread. Okay, but what does this have to do with the theory of autoimmunity? Well, in the 1930s and 40s, researchers and doctors began to detect antibodies in patients with a range of chronic inflammatory conditions like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and multiple sclerosis. The natural next step would have been to search for chronic human pathogens whose presence could be tied to these antibodies. However, at the time, as I've described in previous podcasts, the human body was incorrectly believed to be largely sterile. Well, this confused many research teams working on the topic, because how could they explain the presence of these antibodies when there were apparently no persistent microbes in the human body? They were forced to come up with their best guess as to what could be going on. And they settled on a new concept that forms the backbone of the theory of autoimmunity, the autoantibody. Basically, to be more clear on that, they postulated that in patients with these chronic inflammatory conditions, the immune system had somehow broken down or gone crazy. Then, this confused immune system could generate antibodies against antigens associated with the body's own tissues. They named these hypothetical self targeting antibodies autoantibodies. At first, The theory of autoimmunity and the idea that autoantibodies could exist met with resistance. Paul Ehrlich, the famous immunologist who had characterized antibodies in the first place, was particularly vocal. He wrote papers condemning the theory and cloned the term horo-autotoxicus to best counter it. Horo-autotoxicus contends that the immune system has innate protection mechanisms that simply do not allow it to turn against itself. But, the scientific community wanted a consensus on the topic and needed simple guidelines and chronic inflammatory disease that they could give to doctors. Large conferences began to promote the theory of autoimmunity, and detractors were increasingly pushed to the fringe. So, by the 1950s, the theory had started to be included in medical textbooks. Soon, a growing number of autoantibodies were tied to different chronic inflammatory conditions. For example, Patients with lupus test positive for an autoantibody that was named ANA. Rheumatoid arthritis was officially diagnosed if the autoantibody rheumatoid factor showed up on blood tests. But a major question remained. If the theory of autoimmunity is correct, then what causes the immune system to fail so dramatically that it turns against the body's own tissues? Well, a number of theories attempting to explain this dilemma have been proposed over the years, none of which has been proven. One involves infection and is still frequently referenced today, the pathogen trigger theory. It contends that certain well-characterized pathogens may infect a patient. And something about this temporary infection goes wrong and triggers the immune system to misfire and induce autoimmunity. The pathogen itself is somehow killed, but the immune system never recovers and the patient develops a full-fledged autoimmune disease. Well, the pathogen trigger theory might have held more weight if the human microbiome had not been discovered around the year 2005. As described again in previous podcasts, the discovery occurred when research teams started using new molecular tools to search for human microbes. And the results of these new analyses were astounding. Entire ecosystems of microbes were identified in the human body that had been missed by previous laboratory testing methods. That means today we understand that trillions of microbes live in and on us from the moment we are conceived in the womb until the day we die. These vast microbiome communities persist in every human body site from the brain to the liver, to the lungs and beyond this means that there are actually thousands, if not more, microbes and pathogens in the human body that could be tied to autoantibody release in patients with chronic disease. In other words, autoantibodies may just be regular antibodies created in response to pathogens that our testing methods were previously unable to detect. So, for example, When the autoantibody ANA is identified in patients with lupus, it could simply indicate that an unidentified pathogen plays a role in driving the lupus disease process. Also, it's more likely that autoantibodies are created in response to chronic persistent human pathogens than a temporary pathogen that the immune system somehow kills, as postulated by the pathogen trigger theory. Well, the possibility that autoantibodies are created in response to microbiome pathogens rather than self is strongly supported by the fact that new bacteria, viruses, and other microbes continue to be identified in the human body on a regular basis. For example, Stanford researcher Stephen Quake recently detected thousands of never-before-identified bacteria and viruses in human tissue and blood. In fact, 99% of the microbes he identified were previously unknown to science. Also, for decades, autoantibodies have been regularly detected in patients with no signs of autoimmune disease that are instead suffering from an infection. For example, high levels of autoantibodies like rheumatoid factor, ANA, and also ASCA and prothrombin have been identified in patients with bacterial, viral, and parasitic infections ranging from hepatitis A and B to Q fever to rickettsia. A more recent study by researchers at Yale came to a similar conclusion. The team studied E. gallinarum, a bacteria they identified in the human gut, liver, spleen, and lymph nodes. In models of genetically susceptible mice, the researchers found that E. gallinarum initiated the production of autoantibodies, activated T cells, and inflammation. Moreover, this autoantibody production stopped when they suppressed E. gallinarum's growth with the antibiotic vancomycin and or with a vaccine against the microbe. The team also identified E. gallinarum in the livers of patients with autoimmune disease but not in healthy controls. Those were human subjects. One media headline on the study read, The Enemy Within, Gut Bacteria Drive Autoimmune Disease. Research by Stanford's Mark Davis also supports the findings. Davis and team used a new testing method to obtain T-cell sequences from the tissue and blood of patients with colon cancer, multiple sclerosis, Lyme disease, and ME. In all four diseases, they found that the T-cells were activated and cloned in a manner not observed in healthy subjects. According to the theory of autoimmunity, these cloned T-cells would indicate autoantibody production. But Davis suggested that these associated antibodies are likely formed, quote, originally against some pathogen peptide. This definitely makes sense since, especially in Lyme disease, We know that pathogens drive the disease process. Interesting, right? But at this point, I should bring up an important concern. Some researchers are still convinced that autoantibodies can target human tissue. If this is the case, the situation can be easily explained by a concept called molecular mimicry. Molecular mimicry refers to the fact that pathogen proteins and human proteins are often very similar in size and shape. This means that an antibody created in response to a pathogen protein or antigen might accidentally target a similarly structured human protein or antigen. This collateral damage could result in an inflammatory response towards that human tissue. Think of molecular mimicry this way. Let's say you're a soldier in an army. You and your fellow soldiers all have red uniforms, blonde hair, and stand about six feet tall. You confront the enemy on a battlefield only to realize that their soldiers also have red uniforms, blonde hair, and are about six feet tall. Even though their red uniforms are shaped somewhat differently than your own, at a certain distance the shape becomes blurred. And this means that when the battle begins, you have trouble telling who's on your side and who's the enemy. Occasionally, then, you end up accidentally shooting a member of your own army. Well, these two armies can be compared to the similarly shaped protein uh, pathogen antigens and human antigens that might generate collateral damage on the part of the immune system in autoimmune disease. Ample research supports this molecular mimicry model. For example, one research team found that B cells infected with Epstein-Barr virus secrete antibodies that also react with human antigens like albumin, renin, and thyroglobulin. Another Canadian team research team found that almost 20,000 proteins created by the hepatitis C virus have a high level of structural similarity to human proteins. Researchers in India identified tens of thousands of possible interactions between proteins created by Salmonella, E. coli, Yersinia, and similarly shaped human proteins. All this research strongly suggests that in 2018, we no longer need the theory of autoimmunity. It seems that Paul Ehrlich was right a century ago when he argued for horror autotoxicus. In patients with a range of chronic conditions, activated B cells, T cells, and the antibodies they produce are likely targeting newly discovered human pathogens rather than self. This means that the concept of the autoantibody is incorrect. In lieu of autoimmunity and autoimmune disease, we should focus on better characterizing pathogens in the microbiome and better studying their activity and survival mechanisms. For example, Mark Davis is planning to further study the activated T cells in his samples. He hopes to correlate the T cell activity with the presence of specific pathogens and the antibodies created in response to their presence. Excellent, excellent idea. At this point, you might say, well, looks like the theory of autoimmunity will die over time. No huge rush. But, unfortunately, the situation is very urgent. That's because a large chunk of the pharmaceutical industry is focused on creating drugs based on the theory of autoimmunity. These drugs shut down extremely important parts of the human immune system in an effort to stop autoantibody production and related inflammation. In fact, these immunosuppressive drugs are the top-selling medicines in the world generating billions of dollars of revenue each year. But if autoantibodies are created in response to pathogens rather than self, these drugs are actually hurting the long-term health and microbiome balance and health of patients with autoimmune disease. This is almost certainly why patients taking these immunosuppressive drugs tend to get sicker over time to the point where they often fall ill with a second or third inflammatory condition while taking the medications. In fact, rampant use of immunosuppressive drugs is likely a primary factor driving the current epidemic of chronic disease in which the incidence of nearly every autoimmune condition is on the rise. That means we stand at a crossroads. A paper published just last year describes an entire new generation of immunosuppressive drugs currently being developed by pharmaceutical companies. Some of these new drugs appear to shut down the human immune system even more profoundly than the ones prescribed today. Or we can move in a new direction of drug treatment and discovery. We can ditch the theory of autoimmunity and instead develop treatments that support the human immune system and or treatments that better target key pathogens and in turn promote balance, health, and diversity of the human microbiome. Then maybe, just maybe, we can create a future where new treatments target the root cause of human inflammatory disease instead of just palliating symptoms. And then maybe, just maybe, a growing number of patients with chronic inflammatory disease could reach a state of actual recovery and remission.